Hey folks, Joni here. Charlotte is more than just a banking city or a football city. It's a country music city. Or, well, it used to be. And a lot of people forget how big a role it had in history. Today on Amplifier, we revisit our 2019 interview with historian Tom Hanchett and country musician Bill Noonan. Hope you enjoy today's conversation, and I hope you stay safe and stay inspired. We call it country music, but it's actually music of folks who are missing the country because they've, they've left the farm, they've left the old cabin home on the hill, and they've moved to the big city of Charlotte. I'm Joni Deutsch, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Amplifier, the music podcast where we shine a light on the artists who call Charlotte home. Because Charlotte is more than just a banking city or a football city. So every other Thursday on this podcast, we're going to explore the people, places, and things that help define the Queen City's crown sound. And today, we're sharing an extra special episode, our very first live taping of Amplifier, recorded in front of an audience at the Whitewater Center in Charlotte. This conversation was supported in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting in honor of Ken Burns' country music documentary, premiering Sunday, September 15th on PBS stations across the country. So we sat down with country music historian, Tom Hanchett, and veteran country rocker, Bill Noonan, to discuss Charlotte's country music past, present, and future. And that's coming up on Amplifier. Amplifier. And then the beat will drop. Amplifier. 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 Some may not know that back in the 1930s, more country music was recorded in Charlotte, North Carolina, than in Nashville, Tennessee. So since we have a resident historian on country music here with us today, uh, Tom, can you take us back to that period and tell us how Charlotte became that center for country music? Well, back before Nashville uh, kind of coalesced as the country music city of the South, uh, that all happened really after World War II. Before World War II, there was about um, 20 years or so when radio was a new thing, when folks were moving from the country to the city to work in the textile mills, and it all kind of came together and um, RCA, what became RCA Victor, it started out as, as the Victor Talking Machine Company. Uh, an A&R man, an artist and repertory man named Ralph Peer said, um, you know, there's more to music than the Victor Herbert Orchestra and Bing Crosby. And that's kind of what they were getting at their main studios up in uh, New Jersey. And he said, let's put the equipment in a car, let's go where the music is. And they came to cities all across the South, but particularly to Charlotte. So tell us a little bit more about people moving into Charlotte for country music. I mean, what were the types of audiences or the performers that were coming to the Queen City for this? The, the key thing is, is textile mills, cotton mills. Charlotte uh, became the center of the entire textile mill South in the early years of the 20th century. Um, by the 1920s, we were making more cotton textiles around Charlotte than they were in New England, which had been the first center. Uh, what happened with that was that you needed labor. And out in the countryside, folks were growing cotton, but because the world market was, 
was heating up, prices were going down, and so folks in the countryside were looking for another way to make a living. And the textile mills that sprang up in places like Charlotte, Gastonia, Kannapolis, um, all up and down the Southern Railway here, began to, to pull people off of the farms around here first and then down from the, the North Carolina mountains. And it, it really transformed this region. Uh, you don't think of this as being a textile mill region today. Maybe if you grew up here, you probably do. Um, but there were more looms and spindles in Gaston County than other any kind of county in the, in the world. Um, uh, Kannapolis, the biggest mill town in the world. Uh, the Low Ray Mill in Gastonia was, uh, by some accounts, the biggest textile mill in the world. And that permeates our area. South End is an old textile mill area. Uh, Davidson has a nice college on one side of the railroad tracks, but there's textile mills on the other. Cornelius is a mill town. Pineville is a mill town. And, and all those folks moving here, well, they listened to the radio. Uh, they bought uh, things that were advertised on the radio. And that's how the music began to, to come together in a city. They call it country music, but it's actually music of folks who are missing the country because they've, they've left the farm. They've left the old cabin home on the hill, and they've moved to the big city of Charlotte. So that explains all those songs where they're missing their partner, they're missing their dog, they're missing the, the cabin. They really are missing it because they're based yeah. in a, an urban environment. So you mentioned radio. Um, WBT did have a role to play in Charlotte country music. Can you give us a glimpse into what WBT was back in the 30s and 40s? Well, WBT was the new hot technology back in the 20s. That was when radio was being invented and it was started by a couple of guys, um, teenagers, um, who were playing around in the garage over near Plaza Midwood and figured out how to, how to make this new technology work. Uh, they built it into uh, a station that, that broadcast up to three or four hours a day. Uh, that was the beginnings of WBT. Uh, you know it's an old station because it only has three call letters. Uh, 1929, CBS bought it, and in 1933, they bumped it up um, to, I think, 60,000 watts. And for those of you who don't remember AM radio, I mean, we listen to it now, but it used to be the only thing there was. And at night, do you remember that you could tune in stations from all over the world because the, the, the sound hits the ionosphere and then comes back down again at night? Well, Clear Channel was something the FCC would give to important stations. And WSM in Nashville, where the Grand Old Opry happened, that was a total national Clear Channel. So at night, no matter where you were in the U.S., if you were lucky, you could turn to WSM. WBT was and still is clear channel directional up and down the east coast from Cuba to Canada. Uh, 1110 on your AM dial still is. Uh, today it's all talk radio, but back in the day, the this will sound familiar, the record companies were afraid that if they played records on the air, nobody would buy the records. It, it sounds like the downloading controversies, doesn't it? And uh, so the, the, recording, uh, the recordings were not nearly as important as playing live on the air. And it's amazing the people who played live on the air here on WBT. There were a number of artists that have now become part of the established uh, country music canon that made the recordings here in Charlotte. Um, some really big names. So I'm wondering if we can kind of start talking about one name, the C word. Uh, Six letters, 
Carter? The Carter family, yeah. Uh, first family of country music. Uh, for you young people who don't remember all the way back to the original Carter family trio, um, you remember June Carter Cash. She was the daughter of Mother Maybell, who was one of the original trio. The original trio recorded here two separate times. They recorded in uh, 1931. Ralph Peer had discovered them up in Bristol, uh, but they came down from Bristol to be on WBT radio and recorded them here in uh, 1931. Um, and they, the, the deal was that if you were a country musician, you didn't make much money. You certainly didn't make much money off the records. What you made money off of was public appearances. And so the Carter family would move into an area and they would live there and they would be on the radio in the morning, maybe also at noon when the farmers come in from uh, the fields for lunch. And then they would get in the car and they would drive out to a country schoolhouse, out to a textile mill, community center. And um, you, you kept doing that until you kind of played out the area, until uh, folks said, well, I'm not sure I want to see them again this year. And so you'd move on to another place. So the Carter family lived here in 31, but then they came back in, I think, 38, uh, recorded for Decca Records. That's how we know we were here. But I've, I've heard of folks talking about them being neighbors in the Dixie community. Dixie community is out um, around um, Steel Creek Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's an area that, that's largely gone now. It's under the um, runways of Charlotte Douglas Airport. Uh, but the, the Carter family, You Are My Flower, that's a, a song that Flat Scruggs picked up. Um, a, a whole lot of uh, the, the beginnings of bluegrass, uh, those are songs that were first recorded here in Charlotte. So, Bill, I want to hear your take. These artists that were uh, getting some good airplay, heavy rotation in the Charlotte area in the 30s, what was your uh, experience listening to them when you were younger as you were growing up here in the Charlotte area in the Carolinas? I don't, I don't think it's widely known that so many of those folks who are now legendary in the bluegrass and the old-time country field recorded here. So I think it's a little bit of, of lost history that's been somewhat buried by the decades and, and I think it's another one of those aspects of Charlotte's history that has maybe gone unrecognized for many years that uh, really deserves to have some light shed upon it so that it can bring more awareness and uh, inspiration into the current day. I certainly listened to a lot of those people, like the Carter family, the Monroe brothers, and learned those songs growing up. But uh, really only recently through my association with you and Tom did that fact hit home that wow, a lot of these people recorded first here in Charlotte. And that's, uh, that's a pretty significant fact. Well, there's um, another artist in that roster from the 30s and, and early 40s. Um, and he has a name that some people may know, um, it, but maybe not for the reason you think. And his name is Fiddlin Arthur Smith. So, Tom, can you kind of give us a brief glimpse into what Fiddlin yeah, Arthur Smith if did? If you grew up around here, you grew up with uh, Arthur Smith, the guitar player, who was on television four or five days a week, um, um, every week, uh, particularly in the 1970s, but uh, he was one of the people who recorded here in the late 30s. He was at the very beginning of his career, and he became Arthur Guitar Smith because of Guitar Boogie. That was his big hit, uh, first big hit. He had many other ones, actually. But the, the person he was differentiating himself from was fiddling Arthur Smith from the Grand Old Opry. Uh, folks from the Grand Old Opry came to Charlotte to record in the 1930s. That is how big a deal Charlotte was. 
Uh, Fiddle and Arthur Smith um, came over with the Delmore brothers. Now, you may not know the name the Delmore brothers. Some of you will. But if you know the name uh, Doc Watson, a lot of the country blues kind of stuff that he did, those are Delmore brothers tunes. And Fiddle and Arthur Smith was the star of the Grand Old Opry. If you listen to uh, fiddlers from that first generation of bluegrass after World War II, they talk about listening to Fiddle and Arthur Smith on the radio right before World War II. Um, he wrote More Pretty Girls Than One. He wrote um, um, uh, Beautiful, Beautiful Brown Eyes. I don't know if he wrote it. He, he brought it in uh, to the tradition. Um, he, he wrote the prettiest romantic lyric that has ever been written. And it's, um, I got a pig home in a pen, corn to feed him on. All I need's a pretty little girl, feed him when I'm gone. That's fiddling Arthur Smith. That is not the only performance you'll hear from Tom Hanchett tonight. Actually, I think this is a good opportunity to show the crowd another one of Fiddlin' Arthur Smith's songs. Do you guys want to give us a little bit of a, yeah, little performance? See, folks, this is more than just a conversation that you're seeing up here tonight. This is a song-versation and that you're going to hear some of the music that we're talking about. Uh, we'll go ahead and hear their performance, their take on Fiddlin' Arthur Smith's 1936 classic, There's More Pretty Girls Than One.
And we just heard Fiddlin' Arthur Smith and his song, There's More Pretty Girls Than One, that performance. But let's go to the other Arthur Smith for a second, because once we get past the 30s in Charlotte, there was a bit of a change in the country music scene. Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith was helpful in that transition. Yeah, uh, Arthur Smith, um, the, the TV Arthur Smith, the, the guitar player, um, started out as a, um, a textile hand in Gaffney, South Carolina. His brothers worked alongside him. His father was a loom fixer, which meant that he was one of the most skilled people on the floor um, fixing all of the, the uh, machines. And uh, Arthur looked at how hard his daddy was working and said, I'd rather be a musician. Um, and if you know how hard you work as a musician, that tells you something. Uh, but uh, he came up to Charlotte and uh, played on the radio with the WBT Briar Hoppers. Uh, there was a house band called the Briar Hoppers, which many of you may remember because a version of that band uh, was still running into the 1980s. And when those folks uh, passed away, there's a new version of the WBT Briar Hoppers led by Tom Warlick that's still playing today. Um, but um, they were um, playing what became known as bluegrass. Um, Arthur Smith could play bluegrass, he could play jazz, um, but what he particularly was good at was showing off on the guitar playing the blues. And that guitar boogie piece is a really great example of kind of the, the, the falsity of segregation in the South. We were supposed to be black folk and white folk, and in reality, everything mingled and mixed. And Arthur Smith did this um, killer instrumental, 12-bar blues, and uh, recorded it at the WBT studios. It went out on MGM Records and literally went around the world. Yeah. And his first hit, Guitar Boogie, uh, that was the one hit that really made the difference of sorts for his career. Yeah, that got him started. Um, he's also the guy that wrote Dueling Banjos. Uh, wrote a whole bunch of uh, gospel stuff. The guitar boogie thing, um, when Arthur Smith passed away, there was a, a story in the newspaper. Um, Clay Smith, his son, Clay was over um, talking to a fellow in England named Paul McCartney. And they were talking about some kind of music stuff. And um, it turned out that Clay was Arthur Smith's son. And Paul said, wait a minute. Went to a safe in the corner of his office. This is the way I've heard the story pulled out a 78 of Guitar Boogie. And another story that I've heard, which I believe is true, is that Paul originally uh, auditioned for the Quarrymen in Liverpool to play guitar, and he tried playing Guitar Boogie, and he couldn't do it, but um, the folks liked him so much they invited him to join the band, and of course the Quarrymen became the Beatles. You know, besides Arthur Smith, there were a few others in that time that really did encourage uh, recording artists to come to Charlotte. Um, Tom and Bill, were there any favorites that you wanted to kind of shed some light for the audience? Well, something else these conversations have really opened my eyes to is uh, that the Monroe brothers, Bill and Charlie Monroe, got the start of their career right here in, in Charlotte. And Bill Monroe, of course, is famous to this day as the father of bluegrass. If there was a Mount Rushmore of country music, Bill Monroe's uh, would undoubtedly have a prominent, prominent place there. So that's an example of somebody who's such a household name today uh, among music fans and even more broadly among the general public who got his career started right here in Charlotte. Yeah, Bill, some of his Bill early Monroe and his here. brother Charlie recorded as a duo with Bill Monroe playing this really hot mandolin. First recordings, February 17, 1936 for RCA Victor, sounds exactly like bluegrass, 
bluegrass wouldn't get invented till after World War II when Bill and Charlie broke up. Bill went off to Nashville and started a, a band that included a fiddle player who sounded like Fiddlin' Arthur Smith and included a banjo player who sounded like Snuffy Jenkins who was from Shelby and was on the WBT radio. He kind of was putting together all of the pieces that, that were in Charlotte and he called the band, not the Charlotte Boys, after where he heard that music, but he called it the, the Kentucky, uh, the, the, the Bluegrass Boys, because he was born in Kentucky. So uh, that's how we came to call Bluegrass Bluegrass, but it starts, really starts right here. Well, speaking of which, right here, uh, why don't we go ahead and let the audience in on another performance of yours, this time with uh, the Monroe Brothers. And I think, uh, what, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Does that sound good? Oh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken. You all have heard Will the Circle Be Unbroken, right? Um, it was already a standard, and everybody recorded a version of that, um, including Bill and Charlie Monroe. The version, where, Bill, where do you get the version that, that you play? I have never really referenced a specific version. It's just, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the version from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's Will the Circle Be Unbroken album from the early 70s is probably a point of reference for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was standing by my window on one cold and cloudy day When I saw that hearse come rolling For to carry our mother away Will the circle be unbroken By and by, Lord, by and by There's a better home away Lord in the sky I said to that undertaker For that lady You are carrying Lord, we hate to see her go Will the circle be unbroken By and by, Lord, by and by There's a better home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky Sisters crying in our home, so sad and alone. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, Lord, by and by, there's a better home away 
Coming up, Charlotte, and why it isn't the country music hub that it was back in the 30s. What happened? That answer is coming right up on Amplifier. It's safe to say that Charlotte, based off the examples we're talking about, the performance you're giving, Charlotte was that hub for country music in the half century, 20th century. And then it wasn't. And then it was Nashville. What happened? Why Nashville? Well, there were uh, a bunch of cities where there were strong radio stations where the uh, field recording teams would come down, they would set up for a few days and go away. Uh, Atlanta um, had some of that going on. Roanoke had some of that going on. Uh, Bristol uh, had a lot of that going on and um, down into Dallas and places like that. Um, so it, it wasn't like one or another was guaranteed to rise to the top. What happened in Nashville, I think, a combination of things. WSM was a, a clear channel station that covered the U.S., not just the East Coast. Um, also, uh, if you were making your money out of par personal appearances, if you're a member of the Grand Old Opry still to this day, I believe, you have to be available on Saturday night for the Opry, which means that if you're going to make personal appearances, you can only go out so far and back again. WSM is in the middle of a big population swath, a day's drive one way and the other, so that helped a lot. Also, we had uh, Jefferson Pilot Insurance Company um, was one of the main sponsors here. Early on, there was a, a patent medicine company called the Chicago Drug Trade Products Company, makers of P. Runatonic, Radio Girl Perfume, and Zymal Trokies Cough Drops. Uh, but yep, uh, if you, we got some samples up here if you want to buy them. Um, but uh, Jefferson Pilot, what became Jefferson Pilot, uh, took over. Uh, in Nashville, uh, there was a, a different uh, insurance company, and that insurance company really believed in the country folk. Uh, Jefferson Standard, I think it was called originally, um, was, was looking for a more diverse audience. Uh, the folks in Nashville, the, the advertisers just kind of stuck with the Opry. Uh, there was a point in the 50s and the 60s when Nashville just wished the Opry didn't exist because it was so low class and it was so, you know, that, that old South that we're trying to walk away from. And in Charlotte, we walked away from it, I'm sorry to say. Um, there was still a whole lot of recording going on here if you knew where to look, but in terms of finding it on the radio, it got to be pretty hard as the 50s rolled in. Yeah, and the legacy of recording music in Charlotte, it, it still continues. Well, to a certain extent, I mean, with Arthur Smith, him having Arthur Smith Studios in the Charlotte area, it attracted a lot of national talent here. I mean, the fact that James Brown recorded Papa's Got a Brand New Bag right there in that studio, Arthur Smith being the person that before him was a pioneer of sorts of the 20th century. I mean, the legacy of great music continues in Charlotte in some way, but country music in a slightly different way, I would say. Um, now, all that to say, though, that there is amazing talent in Charlotte, Bill and Tom included in that mix. So part of this conversation isn't just looking back to yonder year and saying, why can't we have that now? 
it's also saying, what can we do to, to really support the artists that are currently here that call Charlotte their home and still call it their home? So Bill, when I surveyed the Charlotte music scene and I asked folks like, hey, who's the go-to country artist? So many of them said that you, Bill Noonan, were the real deal. There couldn't be anyone else but you. Wow, that's a, that's a mighty fine compliment. I ain't no Arthur Smith, that's for sure, but uh, that's just such a compliment. Thank you so much, Joni. And that's why I think it's important for you to be here so that others can see exactly what your experience was like and has been, because you've been working in the Carolinas making this kind of music for uh, around three decades. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you got into music, how country encouraged you to make what you do now. Yeah, well, so I think this ties into some of what Tom was saying earlier. You know that um, when those early record companies like the Victor Company and others of that era, when that industry, that country music industry first began to form, they went to different places, Bristol, Tennessee, they came to Charlotte, and they set up their little recording studios in a hotel room, and they sort of put out a call for talent. And all that early country music was the talent that came right out of the farms, the fields, the factories, the foothills. And uh, I maintain that you really don't have to scratch the surface around here very far to find out that that talent still exists. And you know, the, the current music scene in Charlotte is so diverse, uh, I can only comment on a, a very small corner of it that, that's in my view, but you know and I know, and we all know that it's, there's so much going on out there and so much talent in Charlotte in every genre, every dimension. But I do think that country music is, it's the indigenous music of this part of the country. It's, it's from the, the rural and from the blue collar roots, the mills that, uh, that this part of the country was built on. And so, uh, you know, for myself, I feel kind of like it's the right music for me to be playing. And so I, I think if you grew up in this part of the country with your ears open, that is, that's a lot of what you pick up. And so I think I always gravitated to the, to the authenticity and the feeling of it. So, Bill, you grew up on more, I would say, roots, rock, country-influenced music. Graham Parsons, Emmylou Harris. How's it been for you kind of straddling that line, that border of what's country and what ain't? Yeah, that's an interesting question, is what's country and what ain't. Because even within country music, there are so many uh, genres and subgenres. You know, my kind of country music, so you mentioned those artists I listened to growing up. I'm pretty much a child of the rock era, right? The rock and roll era. So probably the music I heard that most of my contemporaries listened to growing up was certainly rock and roll. But the, the rock artists that I gravitated to were people like Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, later Emmylou Harris, Graham Parsons. And they were very roots oriented and they were very evangelical about their roots. So they were already pointing the way back to those early blues artists and country artists and bluegrass, bluegrass artists that inspired them. And so I always wanted to just follow things back to the source and, and find that, that sort of authentic point of origin. So that, that was fortunate to, to be growing up in that era where even it was the rock era, so much of that music really was uh, very roots based. And I think there's a style that's evolved since, oh, the late 90s and the early 00s, which we call Americana, uh, that started out as uh, a new radio format. So some folks in the radio industry were looking for a home on radio for that music that sort of straddled the line between country and rock and roll. And uh, in the, uh, the mid-90s, when I had a band called The Rank Outsiders, 
we went to Nashville and did some recording there and uh, you know we're able to get some airplay on that new radio format and then in the subsequent years uh, folks like Emmylou Harris, Rodney Crowell, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, all of these artists who hadn't had a home on radio before then found that on Americana. So Americana's kind of been that place where I think uh, you know country meets rock and roll but even that it, it's so diverse. Uh, there's so many different elements uh, you know, from an old-time string band like Old Crow Medicine Show to, uh, to artists who are, who are a lot more rock and roll oriented. So country really is a melting pot that, uh, that I think assimilates a lot of those different musical styles. Yeah. Uh, Tom, we didn't really get to talk about you in terms of why you've written about this subject, why you play this subject, this genre, why you, you love country music. Um, I'm not from around here, um, but I got here quick as I could. Um, I, my parents are Midwestern, and you would think that I don't have any claim on this music. Um, I did grow up partly, my dad taught college in the Virginia mountains, and we lived um, about a 10 minute walk from Don Reno's used cars, and Don Reno was Arthur Smith's banjo player. So I, I grew up kind of close to the music, but um, I grew up in an era when you listened to everything on the radio. There was not one um, format. And so even in upstate New York, you would hear Flat and Scruggs on the radio. And I thought that was wonderful music, particularly since I'd gotten stuck in school playing the violin. How uncool is that? Um, and then I, we lived uh, in upstate New York near Cornell University. I went over one fall day and heard a band called Country Cookin'. And Country Cookin' included Pete Wernick, who went on to found Hot Rise, uh, Tony Trishka and folks like that who went on to found the whole Newgrass movement, and they just ripped through this wonderful music. And it turns out that Cornell was one of the places that Rounder Records was invented, Cornell and Boston. Without Rounder Records, we probably wouldn't have the traditional music scene in the United States we do. Well, then I moved to Charlotte, and Charlotte didn't seem to have any music history, until one day after I'd been here about a year, somebody said, oh, did you know Bill Monroe made his first records here? And I about fell on the floor. And it, it turned out that, that this had been a center for country music. Spirit Square put together something in 1985 called the Charlotte Country Music Story. And I got to help out with that. And there's now a website at historysouth.org that has all that Charlotte Country Music Story history on it. Uh, so Google HistorySouth.org or, or however you do your searching, um, and uh, you'll, you'll quickly know everything that I know about it. That a lot of this stuff is available on CD. Uh, about 1,500 recordings were made in Charlotte uh, from the late 20s to the early 40s. There are at least 100 CDs produced in the U.S., produced in Japan, produced in Germany, produced in uh, the U.K. that keep this music alive. So it's... It's music of a bygone era, but it's very much music that young people today are, are putting their, their headphones on and, and learning this music and, and keeping the tradition alive. Yeah, and absolutely in the Charlotte area, too. You know, you think of the, the big names that have come from the Queen City or the surrounding area. Uh, you think of the Avid Brothers. and it's, it's not an accident that they play banjo. Yeah. They play it like punk rockers, but they play banjo if they had been... Growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, would they be playing banjo? No, they would be playing accordion. But in all honesty, you have artists like the Avid Brothers or Anthony Hamilton or others that have 
and continue to call Charlotte home. And they do have uh, some inspiration. They take some inspiration from the artists that both you, Tom and Bill, love and that you've been inspired by yourselves. So with that in mind, Tom and Bill, how would you define what country music is now? You know, I think of it as uh, mountain music meets the blues. It's music from the land, the farms, the fields, the factories. Um, so it's a very American form of music. Uh, and it's, it's vast and diverse unto itself. So it's very hard to say in two words or less, what is country music? It, uh, it has assimilated so many musical styles and it's influenced so many musical styles. And, um, you know, it's something that's alive and still growing as we speak. I, I define it, I, I would come at it from a different angle. The thing that I think unites the music of the 30s and the music today is it's music that is about longing for the past, longing for the world you grew up in, longing for that old cabin home on the hill, longing for that old town road. Um, that's where we're going now. Uh, the Carter family, a lot of the Carter family songs are things that were popular in the Victorian era, which was about 30 years before they recorded. Uh, what's going on now with country music incorporating rap, hip hop, that stuff is about 30 years old. That's the music that this next generation has grown up with. So I, I think the, the, the mill people here in the 1930s were, um, were longing for that old rural world of the mountains. I think that uh, folks today, when, when you're thinking about longing, when you're thinking about a tear in your beer, that's country music. On that note, um, Bill, you, of course, being the amazing recording artist that you are and the it country artist in the Charlotte area, based off what everyone has said, uh, I'd love to be able to wrap up today's show with one more Charlotte country story and song, and this time one that you've written, not in the 1930s, but uh, in the pretty recent era. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the song you're going to play? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to, Joni. Thank you. So th this song that we're going to play is called Ramblin' Boy Blues, and it, you know, I think it, I can barely call it an original song because it really is just very much like the, it goes back to that era and that style that we've been talking about. And this song was influenced by um, my visits to the Merle Watson Festival up there in North Wilkesboro back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, that's a festival that still goes on the last weekend of April every year. And they have all of the, you know, the greatest artists in bluegrass and now uh, from Americana music on the stage there. And I think that f attending that festival in those years really opened my eyes to the point that Tom made a few minutes ago that bluegrass music, you often associate it with Kentucky for the reason that he mentioned, Blue, uh, Bill Monroe was from Kentucky. But so many of the roots of bluegrass are Carolina music. And uh, I remember that at one of those festivals in those years, John Hartford got up, the great banjo player, and he had a song called Them Boys from Carolina, which kind of makes this exact point that, you know, that there's something, it's in, it's in the soil here, that those roots are really here. And uh, Doc Watson, we, we haven't really mentioned his name yet, but there's, there's no more of a significant musical figure influential from, from Carolina than Doc Watson. So. Uh, this song, I'll call it an original composition, but I'm not sure I'd call it an original song because I'm sure I stole it from somewhere. I'm just not sure where. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of where this song came from. 
is co-author of the Charlotte Country Music Story, documenting Charlotte's surprising history of early country and gospel recordings, available on HistorySouth.org. And Bill Noonan's latest release is his third solo album titled Catawba City Blues, available wherever fine music is streamed and sold. Amplifier is a production of WFAE. This episode was written and produced by me, Joni Deutsch. Our editor is Jadon Marshall. Our theme music is provided by Dirty Art Club. Support for this episode is provided by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Share your favorite Charlotte music recommendations on social media. Just follow and tag me. I'm at a change of tune. Amplifier features a new musical talent every other Thursday. So make sure to subscribe to the Amplifier podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts. And if you're listening on NPR One, make sure to give us a heart or a favorite. It all helps spread the word about Charlotte music. Of course, you can check out the playlist and show notes for today's episode, along with a Charlotte music map on our website, wfae.org amplifier. Until next time, I'm Joni Deutsch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>